Welcome to my show, The Green Link, where environmental community leaders share their passion, interest, and amazing work through this channel and continue to guide and inspire everyone around them. I'm Ishan Bardwaj, and today I have Jaisimha Nugehali. He's a co-founder and chief operating officer of Global Food Partners. He's also a former research fellow at Animal Law and Policy Program at Harvard Law School. Thanks for coming to my show. Thanks for having me, Ishan. I'm really psyched to be here. A shocking fact is that only 8% of the world was vegan in 2018 which are numbers we have to increase. One kilogram of beef requires 150 square meters of land. And to feed the cow, you would need 15,000 liters of water. This process also includes the same amount of CO2 your car would produce driving more than 100 miles. This food is delicious to some, but is it worth the risk for the environment to please our taste buds? Jaisima was one of one out of the 632 million people who decided to turn vegan. So why did you turn vegan? Was it because of the environmental effects or just out of not wanting to eat animals? So I turned vegan when I was pretty young, Ishan. So many, many years ago, um, maybe almost 20, 20 years ago is when I decided to turn vegan right out of high school. Uh, that was primarily because of animal suffering in the dairy industry. So I was brought up in a vegetarian household. So I wasn't any consuming any meat or eggs at all. But uh, I did happen to see, so my grandparents lived in a part of Bangalore where uh, you could actually see dairy cows being raised. And when I used to go to see to visit them, I just see the abuse that these animals would go through day in and out. And I just made the connect that uh, just consuming these animal products were was really cruel. And I decided to go vegan. And, uh, and I must say it wasn't an overnight thing at all in the sense that initially I decided not to consume but then obviously it was really hard because then there weren't a whole lot of alternatives that were available but uh, I found some support with few other people some people in Bangalore who were also planning to choose a vegan way of life and uh, it was called Towards Veganism Bangalore and that was really fun to just meet with them and uh, we as a group then uh, worked with Cafe Coffee Day which was like the leading coffee shop chain in Bangalore like equivalent to Starbucks to launch a vegan shake like so that vegans got some coffee to drink so it was really fun so what really uh, triggered was the cruelty that I saw on animals and then that was primarily because I was able to build a social network again around people who had chosen the same dietary preference and then you decide to go into animal law was this from the same motivation as deciding to turn vegan right so i did not necessarily immediately choose to do animal law uh, i decided to just do law because i wanted to do something different and uh, to be honest, one of the primary reasons why I did just choose to do law was because I wasn't great with uh, mathematics. So then there were only two options as in either you could do engineering or you could do law or something like that. So I decided to do law. And while I was doing that, I continued to volunteer with the local shelter and decided that 
public policy towards animal welfare was going to be the key way to reduce suffering of animals in India. And uh, I started to be involved in animal rescues. Uh, so I remember my first ever rescue were dancing bears in Bangalore. So uh, maybe around the year 2000, uh, dancing bears were pretty common in India and even in Bangalore. And so we, uh, I was volunteering at an animal helpline and uh, somebody called saying that there are these two dancing bears uh, in Kumar Somali out in Bangalore. And then I went there with a friend and with the help of the police, I rescued them. And just to see the law in action as to how inadequate it was to protect the animals uh, really motivated me. So it didn't start off that I decided to do a law degree because I wanted to help animals. But while I was doing my law degree, I realized that animals needed more legal protection. And that was probably one of the most efficient way to reduce pain and suffering on animals. And afterwards, from 1999 to 2005, you increased awareness in students across 40 to 50 schools in Bangalore about the linkages between environmental degradation and social inequality. What are these links? They seem like two completely different topics. So in which way could they be linked together? Right. So one of the key issues was that I saw is in Bangalore, just being in friends with Bangalore, they were, we saw that the social causes were pretty siloed. Uh, you had friends who were completely opposed to big dams because at that particular point of time, India was building these huge dams and there were issues with relation to rehabilitation of tribal people, people who were relocated because of the dam's water and stuff like that. Uh, then you had ish people who were really bothered about deforestation and then you had people who were bothered about animals and stuff like that. But one of the things that I saw was that there was a common link amongst all of this was that this was being done to profit a few. And in all of these, it was the people who were underrepresented in, within the society who were being harmed. And I think just telling students that animal welfare shouldn't be seen in silo, but it needs to be seen as a part of a larger societal problem. Like for example, factory farms, right? Uh, where factory farms are typically located in places, maybe in peri-urban areas, where the lower income quantile people kind of end up staying. And when there is a housefly infestation that is caused because of a factory farm being there, or there is a huge air quality issue, it's not the end consumers who live in the city who end up bearing the brunt of it. The externalities of these factory farms end up going to people who are not uh, able to afford uh, living in a nice place. So what we, what I started to talk to students was that when every single time you make a purchase choice you're not just making a purchase choice for that particular product especially when you just optimize for the cost of the product right as in you walk into a mall and then you start picking up the cheapest possible t-shirt that is made or the cheapest possible egg that is produced it's just that it's cheap because somebody else is paying and just encouraging students to start asking those questions as to why is this t-shirt so cheap? Is it because it's coming from labor practices in fact in farm uh, in factories where there is really no labor rights provided to workers at all? Are these eggs coming because the farm workers there have no protective cares? Literally, farm workers in India have to wait through knee deep of manure in many many egg farms just to collect eggs. Uh, in slaughterhouses, in abattoirs, uh, people who work there work with no protective care 
extremely hard working conditions because uh, uh, the farm own, the the abattoir owners or the farm owners kind of think that investing anything uh, to improve the lives of the workers is just a waste of money and they don't want to pass that cost on to the consumer similarly with relation to environmental degradation be it huge manure pits or manure lagoons that are formed around factory farms or when you see uh, you know, just blood and offals and other things from abattoir just being mixed with normal sewage, which ends up contaminating downwater, uh, uh, downstream water. What you basically realize is that none of these issues really work in silos. The way they work is that they all integrate to one another, but finally the people who are affected are who are not able to afford to speak up because they don't have the voice because of the socio-economic and uh, geopolitical reasons within India and other countries. That makes a lot more sense and I also read about your animal welfare standards and the fact that you're working to make them high and this is actually interesting because in my last episode with Anne we talked about all of her standards in the textile exchange. So what exactly is this standard? Sure. So there's obviously some overlap between the standards and is working in textile exchange and the work that we do because a lot of textile comes from animal products such as like leather, down, wool, so on and so forth. Uh, uh, the, the, but mostly the standards that I worked on, uh, I happen to be a member of the Bureau of Indian Standards, uh, which is like the national standard setting body for government of India, and also represented the government of India in uh, ISO standards making. And basically what we started to look was, uh, can we include, in, incorporate animal welfare and other sustainability measures in different animal products? So this could be uh, what kind of space egg laying hen needs to be provided, what kind of um, uh, manure management system there. Uh, when it comes to feed, uh, there's that, like especially with broiler birds, uh, it's a common industry practice to lace these, uh, the feed with uh, non-therapeutic antibiotics uh, so that it kind of helps with the weight gain of the birds. So broadly writing up some of these standards uh, was really helpful because we thought that once these standards were high enough, it becomes aspirational for the industry to follow it. And also from a consumer's point of view, the consumers are able to ask that question as to whether the products that they are buying meet these minimum animal welfare and other sustainability thresholds. So standards development, especially within the public policy realm, uh, can play a very, very important role to build in safeguards broadly to uh, different products and different issues, including uh, but not limited to animal welfare. Yeah, and something I found interesting was that you supervise country directors in South and Southeast Asia, including the Philippines. So what did you notice about their work and what was the experience like? So in uh, while working at the Humane Society International, uh, I was in charge for the expansion of the organization in, in the Asia region. And I had a chance to... Uh, look at the expansion in the Philippines, Bangladesh, uh, Nepal, Sri Lanka, and other countries. And I think one of the key things that I learned was in the global South, as different as we might think that each one of us are, there's a common line of problems that cuts across India to Bangladesh, to Sri Lanka, to the Philippines. And the problem primarily is the lack of state capacity. In many a times, what we end up seeing is when there is an industry that needs to be regulated, there are broadly two ways to regulate an industry. One is through 
dictate regulations, right? And that's where countries like European, uh, countries in the European Union or the European Union itself, or few states in the US, uh, like say California, have played a very important role where the state, state steps in and says, you know what? This is how the industry needs to function. These are the regulations. In the US, it could be triggered through ballot measures. In the European Union, it could be through pro few progressive member states. Uh, and they kind of set the tone as to how uh, the, uh, the, all of the others need to follow. But whereas in the global south, what we saw is that the state has very little capacity to regulate. And along with the state's low capacity, there's something called as agency capture. So what agency capture means, Ishan, is that every industry has an agency to regulate it. Now, let's say in the US, the USDA regulates the agriculture industry or the FDA regulates the food industry broadly overall, right? So there's an equivalent of similar, uh, equivalent organizations or agencies in India, in the Philippines and stuff like that. For example, in India, uh, the entire food safety is regulated by something called as the Food Safety and Standards Authority of India. In most of these agencies, what ends up happening is there is an industry capture that happens of the agency. So that basically means that the industry that these agencies are supposed to regulate become overrepresented in these agencies. And when an agency wants to regulate them, there's a huge amount of pushback that comes in uh, from the industry itself. So, uh, so one, and, and that's a problem for any sort of progress. And it's also an opportunity because with such huge industry influence over agencies, as long as you're able to develop some industry partnerships and start pushing the change through the industry itself, and that probably is a most efficient and sustainable way of bringing change within. Uh, and uh, so one of the things that I learned just working with all of our fabulous country directors then uh, is that the problems and the battles that each one of them were facing was the same thing, uh, however different socially, culturally we were uh, in the global south. And then from that, you transitioned into working in global food partners uh, presently. So what do you do there now? Uh, in global food partners, I'm the chief operating officer for global food partners. So uh, broadly, as the title would suggest, I take care of any operations issues and um, and just taking care of the operations issue is just to enable the fabulous staff that we have to do good. Uh, because one of the things that uh, I believe is that in many organizations, it's the operational bottleneck. So when I mean operational bottleneck, it could be uh, just the policies and procedures written within the organization or like the, the bureaucracy can just bring really good work to grinding halt and can demotivate staff to do work. So one of the key things that I do at Global Food Partners is to work with that staff to ensure that they have no operational bottlenecks. So that could mean just having the needed tools for uh, the staff to do good work or uh, just to have very, very efficient policies within. And uh, so that's a big chunk of work that I do. Other than that, I also help our technical staff in uh, building technical capacity of egg producers in the region. So currently we are establishing a a training center and a model farm, a high welfare model farm in Indonesia and in China. So I work with them to for the design and trying to get all the logistics uh, in place uh, to get these model farm training centers running. 
uh, because of COVID, we, we pivoted into an online learning. So we're also, you know, it could be liaising with the learning management system and putting out these learning programs. Other than that, I also work uh, I, with the Impact Alliance. So as you know, Anne is the chairperson of the Impact Alliance and Global Food Partners is one of the members of Impact Alliance. And uh, I work very closely with Impact Alliance to help draft up the policies and procedures for the work of Impact Alliance for the trade of impact incentives, which is basically an offset scheme for different commodities uh, where Global Food Partners works for eggs, where uh, egg consumers, so these could be institutional egg consumers, can buy impact incentives to offset the use of their caged eggs uh, from cage-free egg producers, uh, thereby incentivizing cage-free production in the region. So a pretty broad ambit. And also Global Food Partners is a startup and we are a really small but super efficient team. So when you are in a startup, there really isn't a defined role as in you just take up the work that needs to come in and continue so that the work kind of just keeps rolling forward and um, and and we are in constant pursuit of being uh, the most efficient uh, animal welfare consulting group in the world so now i just want to hear about like what are your ideas about the environmental problems and how these should be tackled at local community levels sure so i think the big problem that i see is that a lot of solutions are written up at headquarters level with major organizations and there's very little uh, done actually to empower people at the local community level and when you really bring this down the problem with i feel like with climate change is that when you talk to people about climate change people feel it but it's not really affecting them in their locality right as in yes like temperature is increasing something's happening but there's really nothing tangible for people to see unless you happen to live in those coastal uh, cities or coastal towns where the sea level is rising and you're actually seeing land go away, or you're actually a fisherman and you're seeing all of these effects and your, your catch of fish is going down. But for a general urban metropolitan living person, it doesn't necessarily seem real. And I think that's one of a big problem in terms of just getting a broad based support. People agree, but they don't know what to do. Uh, so I, one of the key things is going to be empowering local communities to start taking small actions and making it really, really easy. And I think the second and the most important thing is consumers need to be made aware so that they're asking the right questions to the corporations, as in a large chunk of corporations around the world and uh, most progressive companies have made commitments to be carbon neutral uh, and have got multiple commitments towards the sustainable development goals. But I feel consumers need to be asking these questions because many times what happens is when a company makes a pledge and puts out a press release, there's a whole lot of coverage around it. They publish it on their social media. From a consumer's point of view, they end up thinking that the problem is over. But then what the problem really is that the pledge is just the beginning and companies need to follow through on those pledge and actually report against those pledges for the progress that they do. And consumers asking those right questions saying that, great, you made a pledge to be carbon free, carbon neutral by 2030. How's it going? What's the process? And also uh, paying more attention to labels when you buy stuff, 
so that you're making that informed choice that your dollars are not contributing to either abuse of animals or, or the environment or broadly uh, subsidizing these climate disasters is going to be very important. I feel like empowering local communities and an, an informed consumer, when they go hand in hand, we can definitely see a change uh, within this whole that's so true some people just know that climate change exists and doesn't really do anything about it and finally i know about your experience in increasing awareness in students when you're in bangalore so what do you think some of these the effects of raising environmental awareness in students and adults are going to be will we see gradual or drastic changes so uh, i'm actually torn apart in this uh, Ishan, as in initially, I was very, very focused, saying that maybe building awareness among students is the way to go. But then, in and I think it could be very different in different markets. And I was like, well, it's not necessarily tractable because these students mostly don't have power to buy. And by the time they come, when they have the power to buy, uh, we don't know whether what's being told to them when they were in school that necessarily changes into buying pattern. And I haven't necessarily seen any studies coming out of India or places where I work uh, where that studies is done. Having said that, I do believe that creating that awareness among students is important because students or children broadly can influence parents buying behavior. And I think we've seen this with firecrackers in India, right? Uh, during Deepavali, it's extremely common for families to go buy these huge boxes of firecrackers, which are mostly polluting. And if there is a decline that's coming, it's not because of the millennials, but mostly because of Gen Z, uh, who are going back and telling their parents, saying that what you're doing is not okay. So definitely students become an extremely important conduit to send a message to the millennial parents uh, who end up controlling uh, the finances. And definitely what we're seeing is hope, as in just the Gen Z, your generation, Ishan, just gives me a lot of hope uh, because of the climate awareness and just consciousness that is there within this generation is uh, really mind blowing and just makes me really, really hopeful for the future. So, uh, so there are two things, one I feel like it, it has to be a both top-down as well as a bottom-up approach. So it's not just one that's going to work. So while you're able to build increased awareness amongst the students, uh, just being aware that there is a problem of scale because with students are spread across a large nation, especially in countries like India or Bangladesh, where uh, you know, a lot of students don't even come to school, like just tapping in is a bit of a problem. Uh, so, but however, you continue to do that at the school level, but also work on the top down towards public policy and corporate policy levels. So I feel like both needs to be done. Uh, but uh, I must say that uh, my experience just going to these schools and talking to children about different issues, and I think just the creativity and the true interest that is there in Gen Z just makes me really, really hopeful for mankind going forward. I had a nice time learning about all the good work you're doing. And I can see that in my town, since kids are participating in all these pro-sustainable activities, there is going to be a change. And I also think that introducing sustainable goals and 
curriculums in schools will also make a really big difference. So thank you so much for talking with me today, Jaisama. Thank you so much, Ishan, for having me. And uh, I must say, uh, just the work that you and your friends and which I follow keenly um, is amazing and keep up the good work. And uh, I, I feel like uh, just the, inter- I feel like the generation, my generation and the generations before when it came to intergenerational equity of resources, we did bad to your generation and gave you a, a an earth that is worse off than how we inherited it and the fact that you are cleaning up our mess and making it better is just a good hope for humanity thanks so much for listening to the show subscribe to my podcast if you enjoyed also follow me on social media my instagram and facebook is at the green link 2020 and my snapchat is at the green link thanks for tuning in and see you next time